Hi everyone, this is Maria Scobe-Pillet and you're listening to Women in Customer Success podcast, the first women-only podcast where remarkable ladies of customer success share their stories and practical tools to help you succeed and make an impact. If you want to learn more about customer success, get career advice and be inspired, you're in the right place. So let's tune in. Welcome to the new episode of Women in Customer Success podcast. Today, I am really excited to welcome my guest, who is Laura Keitlinger, VP of International Customer Success at Seismic. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Laura, let's start quickly with just a few quick questions. Could you tell our audience, where are you based? Where are you calling from? Absolutely, yes. Based in London, I've been here for about eight years, but as you may be able to tell from my accent, I am originally from America and spent some time, I grew up in the Midwest and then spent some time working in San Francisco before moving abroad. Lovely. Okay, now I need to ask, you're in London at the moment, but if there is any other place in the world you could move to tomorrow, what would that be? <laughs> oh, I hate this question because there's so many places that I love. Um, probably somewhere more Southern Europe, Portugal, Spain, maybe Italy. Love the weather. I really struggle with the British <laughs> weather, particularly in the winter time. So the food, the more open culture, and I'm really into the outdoors. So the closer I can be to the sea and to nature, the happier I am. Oh, lovely. You know, I'm with you there. I've been telling my husband since COVID, we should just move south or south or south or just get me outdoors constantly in the warm garden, not in a place yes. like London where sun is decorative. Okay, thanks for that. Exactly. <laughs> That's how I find it. Laura, would the 16-year-old you be surprised to find you in this current job? Gosh, that's such a good question. And I feel really old that I had to dig back hard <laughs> in my memory on what was 16-year-old me thinking and doing. Um, yes, I wouldn't have even known what this job was and probably would have seen myself not necessarily in a hardcore, more business career. But when I look at the qualities that are required to be successful in customer success and the type of work that we do and the way that it combines lots of different generalist skill sets. In that sense, I'm not surprised because I think a lot of the things we're asked to do on a daily basis were things I was already interested in at that time. And the constant kind of problem solving and evolution of the job is a good fit. And I've always loved change and been very curious. So yeah, a bit of both, I suppose. Not too many surprises for a 16 year old. And oh, lovely, lovely. I think that I wanted to be at that point ambassador, politician, something like that. So I'm very much way off. I'm just so glad I'm not that. <laughs> yeah. So Laura, again, thanks for coming to the show. I think I would just give you the opportunity to properly introduce yourself to the audience. I'm sure they are really eager to find out more about you, your background, and the most interesting question for all, how did you end up in customer success? <laughs> Yes, the classic question. So I'll go back to university, actually. And, and there I studied accounting and finance and graduated and joined kind of a grad scheme at General Mills and the FMCG sector in their financial leadership development program. Got my CPA, did a couple of roles as a financial analyst, decided for personal reasons to make the move out to the Bay Area, landed at Google in a financial analyst role, 
And just very quickly realized in those first three years out of uni that sitting behind spreadsheets all day was really not a good fit for me. And although I'm introverted, my favorite part of the job was sitting down with my business partners and understanding what they were working on and really understanding the business as a whole. And I left yeah. Google and decided I'm going to go, you know, I'm sorry, sorry. Just yeah. to ask, so spreadsheets, even at Google, even that wasn't enough. Wasn't that much fun? <laughs> no. It was worse because we had to use Google Sheets instead of Excel. And when you're in finance, that is just not sufficient. Oh, yeah. So it was very tough. Big, big <laughs> one. Okay, great decision. You moved out. Okay, let me hear what happened next. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I left Google and thought, you know, I also didn't feel like big companies were the right fit for me. I liked the more entrepreneurial culture and a chance to grow something. And so kind of through my network, ended up at DocuSign. And initially, I was actually only supposed to stay there for two weeks. I took oh. on a contract role in finance while I was looking for another job. And two weeks turned into three and four and then two months because they hadn't hired someone for the role. I wasn't even really a fit for what I was doing, but I was an extra pair of hands. They knew I was looking for a job. And then as it got closer to me potentially leaving, we all sat back and said, gosh, I really enjoyed working there. I loved the people, the culture, the mission of the company. They thought I was a good fit. So we kind of crafted a role that was part operational and kind of financy, tracking all of the headcount and hiring for the business. But then they let me work with people, <laughs> which was my request. And I did some recruitment and I did a lot with just growing the team and getting the team ready for scale across the business. And that was really where I got addicted to this more startup scale up size company. And that role was amazing for giving me the chance to understand how are the senior level managers thinking about actually growing this business and making trade-off decisions about where they invest in the team and where they don't. I loved DocuSign, but I had some GMAT scores that were expiring and I'd always wanted to go back to business school and I'd always wanted to live abroad and fell in love with the MBA program in SEAD. So I moved to Singapore and did my MBA mostly there. INSEAD is a French school. And so you can move between the Singapore and French campuses. I spent a couple of months in France, but the rest of my year in Singapore. Wow. And after that felt like my time abroad wasn't yet done. But I didn't want to start over entirely personally. So I had loads of classmates moving to London. I knew I wanted to stay in the high tech scene, the high growth company area. And again, through my network, was fortunate to land a job and a visa at Qubit, which is a marketing technology firm, UK-based, London-based, growing quickly. And part of my goal of going back to school had been, you know, as I mentioned, I started my career more finance and accounting I wanted to go back to school and really get back to that kind of 10,000 foot view of the business, think more about strategy and ultimately end up in a role that was closer to revenue and maybe a bit more generalist. So I landed at Qubit in their professional services team as a senior consultant working with customers. And I was looking around in my first few months and telling the leader of the services team, I don't really understand how we sell a deal and then services services it, but there's nothing in between. <laughs> like no one's managing the contracts. No one's really looking at the relationships. And soon thereafter, they were raising money, which I think probably investors were asking, why don't you have a customer success team? And so they came to me and asked, would I want to start that team? So I spent about two and a half years growing that team from nothing to 15 people globally. We put in all the processes and operations to run it, developed all of the ways of working with customers. And it was 
just getting thrown into the fire. I tell everyone I still am, but especially at that time was a student of customer <laughs> success. It was very much learning while doing as many of us, I think, do. But I really kind of fell in love with it and realized that A, it was a generalist role, which I really liked. B, it was the heart of the business. Customer success touches every part of a subscription software business, as well as many parts of our customers' businesses. And we own the vast majority of the company's revenue. So my goal of getting closer to the revenue was realized very quickly. And then I got a call from my DocuSign network saying, hey, there's this amazing company that's just going to be starting over in Europe, in London called Seismic. They're creating the sales enablement space. They need a CS leader. I think you should think you should speak to them. So yep, followed that advice and was really impressed with what Seismic was doing. So I joined them four and a half years ago as their first CS hire in Europe and have grown that team. Now I own also APAC. We've grown that from one to 20, I think we are, managing the whole international book of business. So that's a bit about my journey, not short, but um, here we oh, are. It's actually short. I just realized I do have a tendency to stop people and ask so many questions about the journey because they're so interested. I'm just happy that I let you finish, but I'm going to draw upon some of the interesting parts of it. Firstly, Singapore, I forgot. That was on my list of places where I would move into, although I've never, ever been there yet. I just know that I could just easily move there tomorrow. I have no idea why. But what is so interesting for me is that, okay, you lived in the US and then you just wanted to go abroad and you went back into school and it was like France and Singapore and then London. Ah, it's awesome, right? But, it, you know, things like that don't just happen overnight for people. And what were those motivations of being, I mean, it's also just having that confidence. That's it. I'm just going to another side of the world to study. Because as you said, it almost sounded like, yeah, it all just happened just, just naturally in five minutes. Yeah, I'm going to Singapore tomorrow. I'm just going to live <laughs> there. But I know there is just lots of thoughts and everything that goes behind. But it seems that that whole the world was just so open for you. You were just embracing it as your home. And I just want to see a bit of like, why? It's awesome. I love it. Tell me, tell me why. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's such a lovely question. And you're right. It does take effort, but I think also just having the intention and the openness and the curiosity. So I guess in terms of motivation, I studied abroad while I was at university. I spent a summer in Spain and that was my first really meaningful experience outside of America. And I came home and I told my parents, I loved it. I'm going to move abroad someday. And I think they both thought, oh, this is just, she's just had this really cool experience and this enthusiasm will pass, but it didn't. And let her dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I did a bit more travel kind of during university and afterward. And then one of my roles at General Mills, I took specifically because it meant it was a sexy job called internal audit, which I hated the role, <laughs> but it meant that I got to travel to some of our locations internationally as well. So I continued to have exposure. And I guess as a, a almost curious to a fault person and personality, I just loved being in different places and learning about new traditions and foods and cultures and having to learn to work with people that think differently and communicate differently. I just found that a really positive and enriching challenge. And as I thought about what I wanted out of my further education, it kind of always been a personal goal that I would go back to school. And honestly, professionally, I had a lot of people telling me 
if you want to stay in high growth technology, you really don't need another mm -hmm. degree. You need experience. This might set you back. And I consciously chose myself and said, but this is an experience I want to have. And I want to go be with people and continue learning. And I'm not sure, you know, it's really hard to get work visas. And this, you know, post COVID, I would say that has changed a little bit, but this was many years before COVID. So digital nomad was not really a thing at the time. And I thought school was the easiest way to do that. And I consciously chose INSEAD because I knew what I wanted to get out of that both personally and professionally was a truly international experience and one that would give me more exposure to entrepreneurship and some of these skills, like I said, that I didn't really gain from my initial education at university and had done my research quite thoroughly. That's how I landed on INSEAD. And I guess to me, it felt like, well, I really love Asia. Singapore, I call Asia light um, because it's very Western, but Asian as well. And it felt very safe going back into a school environment where there would be automatic community and support built in. And so it didn't feel like too big of a risk. And I thought the worst that happens is I do this for a year and I move back to San Francisco where I still had my flat and many friends and a strong professional network. And I would just go back to work. And if that's what happens, that's what happens. Otherwise I'll let my heart take me to the next places. And I guess just having that openness of mind and really allowing my own curiosity to guide me has been helpful. It's also been helpful that INSEAD gave me such a global network because landing in any new place now feels comfortable as I generally know at least one person or at least have contacts who can give me some advice. And I love being abroad and working cross-culturally still today. So that's what's kept me in Europe. And I love that you had that experience of being in business firstly and then going back to school. That's one thing that I would change in my career if I could now, because I was always just studying, studying, studying without having business experience. And then I got mm. to a point that I had lots of degrees without a business experience. So yeah, <laughs> I would just do things a little bit differently now, but no, that's definitely, I think a wonderful motivation for everybody. Gain the experience in the world. You can study always, and it's always great to go back into studies and you can do even both sometimes at the same time. But that experience is what you will always need. And it gives you a different perspective for sure when you're studying after yes. working. I couldn't agree more. And I just could see and sense in myself the types of questions I was asking or the ability to, in class, even if they were teaching something quite theoretical, to already start making connections to how I might take that forward or where I wanted to challenge it. And that was one of the most enriching parts of my MBA is you have people from so many different not only cultural backgrounds, an international program, but professional backgrounds and people asking really good and challenging questions or saying, oh, I've, I know that's the theory, but this is how I've seen it mm -hmm. come to play in the real world. And we could all learn from that. And I took a lot away from that, probably more so from the discussions with my classmates in some ways than the actual academic program. But I guess that's also the point <laughs> of many MBA programs. But hearing about your career now and that desire and curiosity of just being abroad and knowing different culture, I can, I can get it absolutely why are you so successful in your role? Because you're leading currently the Holy Mia and international team of the company that is headquartered in the US, right? So there is loads of yes. cultural nuances of how do you do it all together. And because you were exposed to, shall I say, all, let's say all three continents, like the US and the whole EMEA and APEC, how do you see that playing out 
in the workplace and with your customers. Tell me about those differences and all of those juicy, interesting things. Yeah, gosh, that's a that's another really good question. And one thing we've done well and invested in as Seismic is building a local presence in each of the major markets that we're in. So in Europe, for example, we have operations in the UK, Germany, and France. And I have folks in each of those markets who report to me, but in terms of working with those customers and being able to really localize an experience for them, we've taken the approach of using local hires to help do that. But absolutely learned a lot along the way. I still have some challenges. So digging into that a bit more, I think it's so interesting. One of the things, and I actually felt this come to life the most during COVID, a very heightened time emotionally for my employees, for my customers. And each of our countries, even within Europe at the time, were going through the waves of lockdowns and restrictions at different times. And started to see what's my default reaction to all of this and what is everyone's default. And that was so ingrained by the culture that we grew up in and certain cultures being more emotional, others being much less willing to speak about their feelings. And that was a challenge as a leader on how do you keep a team motivated? How do you give people some of the space that they need to go through whatever emotion they're feeling, but also check in on them and keep them on track and try to crack them open a little bit to try to understand what they're experiencing so that I could guide or I could take pressure off. So that was a really tough experience, a really uh, one of with a lot of learnings and that I'll take away. But I think it's guiding how I continue to manage, which is more empathy for where we're all coming from, probably asking more quality questions of people to understand what they need from me. And then obviously that flows on to our customers when our team is well taken care of, the customers feel that too. And probably the biggest part of my job internally in terms of supporting my team in many ways, aside from the day-to-day actual on the ground support is relaying back to leaders in America, making all of the budget and many of the strategic decisions about a market like Europe and like Asia that they don't know as well about why our ways of working and how our ways of working will differ and trying to be objective about that, but also very realistic about, you know, Southern Europe is a much more emotional culture. Our customers are going to want a more hands-on approach. They want really strong and deep relationships versus in the US, customers tend to want a slightly more transactional relationship or a call as needed. In Germany, they're gonna go to the nth degree during the purchasing process to vet us, but they will stay with us forever, but they will have the most detailed questions. And my team needs to be provided with all of those details to maintain their credibility with customers. So I think I've just worked through really getting to know deeply my team, my customers, and, and just general cultural norms through my own lived experience and some studying as well to be able to kind of carry that torch and try to make it as easy for my team and customers as possible based on their unique needs. Laura, I think you just became an advocate of every single customer success and business leader in EMEA, probably internationally as well, (laughs) who are reporting to a US-based company. Every single person I ever spoke to, and I've been in that situation many times, and I still am, It is all about translating almost your culture and how you work to the headquarters so that they could understand there is so many more than one fits all approach. 
there is so many nuances about this culture and the ways yes. that customers want to interact with us as well. And as you mentioned, there is a huge difference between Southern Europe, between Germans, between like Scandinavians. I always remember those customers as being so self-sufficient, just know it all, it's so you know, good to work with. But there are so many differences. Whereas sometimes in the US, yes. perhaps it seems much more transactional uh, that's what i always felt and there is nothing wrong with it it's just how it is but it is much Absolutely. more united front for that whole continent of northern america rather than geographically smaller emia with so many other differences from cultural to languages to localization everything exactly Yes, exactly. We talk a lot about reminding our C-suite that we lump everything together as EMEA and APAC, but actually we're managing four or five regions within the EMEA and APAC team or within our international business. And each of those is going to require a slightly different investment model and a slightly different engagement model with customers. And we need to be open to that if we want to call ourselves a truly global company. And I'm fortunate I'm working in a business that is really listening and empowering and trusting the leaders in international to make those decisions and run the business. But it is nevertheless challenging. And I, I agree with you. I think a lot of us who work abroad for American headquartered companies experience this. You also said when you speak with C-suite, now I'm thinking, gosh, your finance degree just comes so handy in those conversations for sure. <laughs> yes. I've never been so grateful that I had mentors, you know, kind of going into university and at university telling me this is such a solid foundation. And if you feel like you can get through this program and that you can do some years in this field, even if you ultimately decide you don't want to, it will be hugely helpful to you. And I believe them. And I think I already had a sense at a young, much younger age that I was more entrepreneurial and I like to have a lot of autonomy and kind of do my own thing. And there was always going to be money involved if I was in business. So I needed to understand this. And it has been so, so helpful in my career. The types of conversations I can have, yes, with those leaders and particularly with finance and operations and that instantly earn me credibility because I understand where they're coming yeah, from. Yeah. I can read their models. I understand them, but I can recite back what I think or relate my business needs into their model. I don't want to build the model anymore. That's why I got out of finance, but I can understand it all. And I enjoy that and actually like really love working with those business partners because ultimately what we do in CS, as I said, it's such an important part of the revenue generation of the business. We have a huge stake in influencing the overall business metrics and success and what our investors see and how our board measures what we're doing and kind of being able to link all of that together is great. And it's also been really enlightening for my team to understand the power and the impact that they're having on the business because I try and bridge that gap for them. Perfect. So you have all the skills and knowledge that you need to have for it. Awesome. Now, practically, what are those typical metrics and conversations that you bring into the C-suite? Because, um, well, increasingly we are hearing how, especially even in the light of layoffs, in general, it, sometimes it feels that there is almost that notion that customer success teams are sometimes underestimated into what they do and mm. like you know what do they do the whole day like do they just talk to customers like we are the numbers so yes. how do you help really showcase the value what do you bring to the table in that way 
Yes, thank you. It's this is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, especially as we go through planning right now. We're just finishing our fiscal year and looking at investments for next year. And I think we've been very blessed at Seismic to have world class retention rates. And so the other CS leaders and I do focus a lot on gross and net retention. And one of the things that we're measuring a lot right now too is uplift. So just simply what price uplift on current contracts can we take? So not what more are people buying, but simply how much more are they willing to pay for what they currently get? And we're seeing even in this difficult economic time that many of our customers are still easily accepting the uplifts in their contracts because they see value. And so a big piece of what we're taking back to our leadership is, hey, we know new business is harder to close right now. We know that our existing customers are seeing value. Here's how you can measure that through renewal rates, retention rates, uplift, and then ultimately net retention as well, which would include additional expansion. Those are the key financial metrics that the investors look at and that we're looking at internally that do showcase the value of CS. Sometimes I think there's still a tendency to your point that it's sort of taken for granted that these numbers just, they've been great, they've always trended well, so it must not be that hard. So other types of things that we're looking at are around, you know, occasionally we'll run time studies just to showcase where do CSM spend their time and where are they doing things that other departments could actually do so that we can focus more on adoption and value. And we've been on a huge push in the last couple of years of really analyzing our adoption data and tying actions that we're taking holistically as a CS team back to increases in adoption and very specific parts of the platform that we know drive value and stickiness. And then finally, you know, a big part of scaling is showing that we can do more with the same or more with less. So we've also, in terms of advocating for our own additional investment in CS, continue to show how over time we are doing more with the same resources that we've had. So how many more customers are they carrying? How much more revenue? How many more business reviews are we driving? We've invested in some other teams and areas of support that surround CSMs. How much are customers using that? What kind of feedback are we getting either through CSAT or NPS? And really trying to paint a picture of tying good customer sentiment back to the actions that we're taking as best as possible. That's not always 100% straightforward, but really trying to show a data-driven picture to our leaders about what it is we do and how that ultimately contributes to the overall kind of financial and business goals that we have. It's interesting how you mentioned that you're looking into how much more can customers even pay for the current services. I think this is just so cool because so many other customers are thinking about different concession plans and, you know, bad economy, how to forecast the bad economy into the numbers next year and how to help customers just, you know, even pay for the basics that they have, which I know will happen, sure. of course. But on another hand, you are doing something much more controversial, much more interesting, like how much more are they willing to pay, which <laughs> means that they are seeing so much value that the value is not even the question. Yeah. The question is how much more they can pay. So I am also interested to find out how, like, that value piece that is sometimes difficult for CSMs to even, mm -hmm. you know, bring to the business. But what is that main value ingredients for you? So, like, I I'm fascinated how that's a given almost for you because the customers will pay more. So, what is it that they are getting, and how are you helping them see that value? 
Yeah, and I will say, of course, we're facing we're facing all of the same challenges economically that everyone is, and customers downsizing and looking at seat reductions. But then we are countering that with okay, pay a bit more. So on that value piece, this is constantly evolving for us, as I think it does in every business, particularly as our platform expands and we sit in this enablement category that is also evolving. And so, in my almost five years at Seismic, we certainly don't have the exact same value narrative every six months uh, even. It's changed a lot. But what we really focus on is marketing and sales efficiency and reduction of risk in, we work with a number of regulated customers in industries like financial services and healthcare and life sciences. And some of what we do kind of gates things for their end users that mean that we reduce a lot of compliance risk. So I would say we we're very good at the storytelling around the value that we drive, the hard metrics a little bit tougher to get to. I think a lot of our customers are keenly aware that we sit in an important place in their tech stack and give them capabilities that they just wouldn't really have otherwise. And the data and visibility that we drive into their business for them to be able to make more informed decisions is also of high value to them. So we focus a lot on tying back the work that we're doing with our customers to their broader business goals and pointing out even again, if we can't tie it through a hard metric, hey, your goal is to grow revenue. And here are ways that we've given sellers more time to sell, or we've given your buyers a more personalized experience, which we know leads to more sales. And that's the kind of narrative and talk track that the CSMs take with customers. But we don't wait until renewal to do that. And I think that's a really important point. This is an ongoing conversation. And I always say renewal should hopefully be a bit of a non-event. It should be something we must do because there's a contract, but we should know well in advance if customers aren't on the same page with us about the value we jointly think is being realized. And we should have had a plan to mitigate that. And we may get to the renewal and not quite be there. And then we can have the discussion about it. But I see so much the role of the CSM is to keep that conversation ongoing and make sure we have the finger on the pulse with the customer. I like how you brought it up. Renewals shouldn't be an event, shouldn't be a thing. It should be just a normal consequence of everything that was done and just continuation of relationship and conversation. Absolutely. Yes. It's an outcome of the work that's been done, not like a thing. And we actually were just working on mapping out our customer journey again internally. And we decided to remove renewal as a stage in that journey because we want to treat it more as an outcome of all of this other work and put it as a bullet point, but it's no longer, I think, going to be like a main called out stage, which I think is is fascinating. And I'm curious to see how people respond to that. Ooh, that's a really lovely approach. Laura, you seem so confident and you obviously are in delivering the value of customer success to the executives. And, you know, it just seems that you're having it all in your little finger. But being a woman in leadership, in, in high leadership and dealing with C-suite and executive level full of male in the room sometimes, it's probably yeah. everything but not challenging and easy. What has been your experience in that department? <laughs> Yeah, good question. And I think, thank you for your seeing me as being confident, but I will say as many people, especially many women, I have and have really struggled in the past, continue to with imposter syndrome at different times. And I've done a lot of work on overcoming that. And I do think working in a male dominated field probably has contributed 
to more imposter syndrome than perhaps I would feel otherwise, though I don't know because I don't have a comparison. So I guess a few thoughts on this. I think one, for me, building personal relationships with the people that I work with and having some one-to-one conversations before I might go into a large meeting where we're doing a lot of planning and I might be one of the few females has been really important to me finding my voice and also kind of pre-vetting or finding some trusted people where on those days when I'm really doubting, "Mm, is this the right path or will this message land that I can go to for some support and help. And I think I have been quite intentional about the culture of the companies I work in as well, that there is an openness, not only to diverse thoughts, ideas, and backgrounds, but also to that personal relationship building and to that being an important part of a culture. I also do think that speaking with data, so something I'm also aware of, I, as a human, tend to lead with emotion. But as we've talked about, I've got that finance and that operations background, and I have that logical part of my brain. So just getting really familiar with myself and how I respond in different situations or recognizing situations where ooh, even if my default, like, oh, I just want to be emotional about this, which I think women often get a bad reputation for, I can take a breath, pull myself back, still infuse my response with some emotion, but also lean on some logic so that my message is perhaps better heard by the audience. And I don't think that's even necessarily a gender thing. I think that's also about learning to communicate with people who think differently than you. I work with plenty of women who are extremely logical and that's the way they lead with their thoughts. So yeah, I think really getting to know myself and then, like I said, the audiences that I'm working with has been very helpful to my success as a leader. And finally, just we all have to earn our credibility. So the number one thing I focus on is delivering the results that I've been asked to or I've and or I've promised the business and building really high performing teams because when the team operates super well automatically, <laughs> the leader looks pretty good and people will recognize that and see it and look to you for advice and thoughts. So absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that. I'm taking that one takeaway for sure. You're really intentional that when you want to deliver the message, either that is C-suite or really somebody else, you have to know that audience. And you spoke a bit about how you should know them personally. But there is a huge difference in the way that you deliver same message to different people based on your relationship with them. So I think that that's so important. And thank you for bringing that to our attention. It's definitely one of those important skills for everybody working with customers as well and just well everybody working with people there are so many differences and especially the way how people exactly one single same message so yeah thanks for making us aware of it yeah and i think even back to the culture conversation we were having that messaging you know i might deliver something differently to the sales leader in Australia than I do to the sales leader in Germany for that very reason as well. So I think you're right. It is just really about knowing your audience and understanding how they communicate. And I just love that. I could also learn if I want to be really successful, I should travel the world a bit more, which I love. I should do much more about finance and then stretches for sure. Because that is definitely giving you such a good, good baseline for everything else in life. So this is this is a wonderful background and just your curiosity of discovering different cultures and world is inspiring. Thank you so much for coming to the show and sharing that with us. Oh, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Next week, new episode. 
Subscribe to the podcast and connect with me on LinkedIn so you're up to date with all the new episodes and the content I'm curating for you. Have a great day and talk to you soon.